Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In this week's lesson from the Israelites' journey in the wilderness, we will see one of the more famous instances of sibling rivalry in the Old Testament as Miriam and Aaron oppose the leadership of their brother Moses. So open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 12 and join us as we continue to learn how the journey from bondage to freedom points us to Jesus Christ. I want to start off with just a quick uh, time of confession here. Um, how many of you guys went through uh, some sort of a period of rebellion? Anybody go through a rebellious period at times? Yeah, that would, that would be my next question. How many of you outgrew it, or how many of you, you know, got, got out of it? I know my, my youthful rebellion was gone, gone kind of early. You know, uh, my dad was in the Army and overseas uh, about three times before I was 11, and I was the only child, and my mom, I know I, she did not know a lot of the things that I was doing, but I had an older cousin who was helping me figure out some things to do that weren't good. And so we, uh, you know, I, I managed to get out of trouble. But I did most of my smoking, my cussing, my looking at porn, all that stuff before I was in fifth grade. Um, kind of, the Lord kind of helped me get it out of my system relatively early there. Uh, but some, sometimes, you know, re- rebellion looks like I, I just don't care what anybody thinks, what anybody says. I don't care what my parents say. I don't care what the law says. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do. But sometimes rebellion is, is not quite so obvious. Um, so sometimes re, re, rebellion is really uh, um, very much more subtle because it's a matter of the heart rather than a matter of just our outward behavior. Um, we're especially prone to that kind of rebellion when, when we compare ourselves to other people. Um, I, I think that's, that's when we can have this kind of resentment, complaints going on. But when we believe God has given somebody else a better situation than what we have, or they're, they're getting more recognition than what we have, we, we can have that kind of resentment. We're going to see that in our text here uh, this morning. Uh, there's a Bible commentator, though, uh, R. Dennis Cole. I haven't been familiar with him too much before I was reading his commentary and, and he sees chapters 11 through 14 of Numbers as the first of what he calls three rebellion cycles in the book of Numbers. So we've got a rebellion cycle, we've got some other things, and we've got a rebellion, we've got other things, we've got rebellion again. And, and so in the rebellion cycles, we see God responds to the distrustful attitudes and hearts and actions of his people with a discipline uh, that, that's meant to protect the larger community from, from being led astray. And yet it's in, in the middle of that distrust and in the middle of that rebellion, God continues to show compassion and grace on his people by, by, by disciplining them, but not disciplining to the point where he destroys them. And, and he's going to be fulfilling his own promises. He's going to be glorifying his own name. So Cole points to a, a recurring pattern. I think I have it here in this slide. The people complain and then God punishes them for complaining. And, and then oftentimes the place where the complaint occurred is given a name indicating the complaint and God's action to it. So we see the different passages here, 11, 12, 14, 17, 21. 
these different rebellion cycles. And, and we've got a couple of places here we're going to see where, where this happens. Like, And um, the, our previous teaching, Hunter gave on Numbers 11, we, we saw the Hebrew people complaining about their hardships. And they were complaining about how hard life was and about... The, about their food. That was the second complaint we had last week, about, about the hardships and about their food. And in Numbers 11.1, 1, what we had last week, the people complained about adversity. In 11.2, the Lord's anger kindled against them, and, and he set, sent fire to burn part of the periphery of the camp there. So some of the people died. And then in 11.3, it says, so the name of that place was called Tabera because the fire of the Lord burned down upon them. So we got the complaint, we've got the judgment of God, and then we've got this naming of a place that reminds them to commemorate their rebellion. In Numbers 11, 4, and 5, the people complained about their lack of, of choices for their food menu, okay? Uh, this trusting God's ability and his love uh, to them. And, and so they were complaining about, when we were back in Egypt, we had all these vegetables, we had all this meat, we had all this fish, everything was great back there. So they were complaining about their food. And then in Numbers eleven thirteen 13, or 33, the, the Lord then uh, gave them quail. But the quail wasn't so much a blessing as it, as it was a judgment, because he gave them so much quail that they ate and they got sick and they had like a plague with the quail. And said, so therefore, the name of the Lord of that place was called Kiriath Ha'atavah, because there they buried the people who had the craving. That's what that means, the, the people who had the craving, buried the people who had the craving. So they named that place that because that was the judgment that God had given to his people. Now, here's something that I find kind of noteworthy. Back, back in the book of Exodus, where the Israelites complained about the food or not having water or what God was going to do, we, we don't see God actually giving punishment. We don't see a discipline back there. Um, we see God showing mercy to them back there. We don't really see any discipline happening to them when they're complaining or being rebellious, really, until we get to Sinai. And it's at Sinai when they're rebellious that then God starts to, to give them uh, punishment or discipline for their complaining because there's, there's a higher stake. Once we enter into a covenant with God and he, he calls us his people and we call him our Lord, and then when we start to rebel, there has to be a discipline because he's protecting the larger community of his people from just rampant sin and rebellion. And he's taking care of us with that, even with that discipline. So to be in covenant with God invites discipline when we break that covenant. I think that's an interesting thing, that after Sinai, we see more discipline. Before Sinai, we really didn't. So our passage this morning in Numbers 12 continues this pattern of complaint and discipline. This time we don't really see a, a naming of a place to commemorate the complaint, but we do see the, the, the complaint, we do see the discipline. So I'm going to be reading out of the uh, Hallman Christian Standard. It may be a little different than what your translation is, but we're going to read verses 1 through 16 of Numbers chapter 12, and I invite you to kind of read, read along with me there. <clears throat> Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because of the Cushite woman he married, for he had married a Cushite woman. They said, does the Lord speak only through Moses? Does he also not speak through us? And the Lord heard it. And Moses was a very humble man, more so than any man on the face of the earth. Suddenly, 
the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, you three come out of the tent, out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them went out. Then the Lord descended in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and he summoned Aaron and Miriam. And when the two of them came forward, he said, listen to what I say. Is, if there is a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my household. I speak with him directly, openly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The Lord's anger burned against them, and he left. Now, as the cloud moved away from the tent, Miriam's skin suddenly became diseased as white as snow. And when Aaron turned toward her, he saw that she was diseased, and he said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, please don't hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Please don't let her be like a dead baby's, a baby whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. Then Moses cried to the Lord, God, please heal her. And the Lord answered Moses, If her father had merely spit in her face, wouldn't she remain in disgrace for seven days? Let her be confined outside the camp for seven days. After that, she may be brought back in. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until Miriam was brought back in. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. I think that's the conclusion of our passage here this morning from Numbers chapter 12. And we, we see even there at the very end, the whole people were held up because of the sin of Miriam on one hand, but also of the compassion of the Lord on the other hand for waiting until Miriam would have had her period of impurity and, and her being cast out of the people on the other. So we're seeing judgment and we're seeing mercy mixed in here throughout the, the text. But as we look at the complaining here, the complaining did not start with the rabble as it had in Exodus 4 when uh, Hunter was preaching last week. Now, the rabble would have been this kind of mixture of Hebrew people. And we read back in Exodus that a whole lot of Egyptian people came with them. They, they say, no, we're going to accompany these Israelites because we believe their God is bigger than any of the gods here in Egypt. And so whatever side he's on, we want to be on his side. We're going to go with them. So it was this kind of mixture of the, the Egyptians and then the Hebrew people that started to rebel and think about how good things were and their recollection back in, in Egypt. And this time, though, the complaining is not coming from the rabble. It's not even coming from just the Hebrew people. This time, the complaining is coming from some of the closest confidants and co-workers that Moses has. It's coming from his brother and his sister. It's actually coming from the... the the Hebrew that we're going to see here shows that it was really Miriam who was doing most of the speaking because we've got a, a feminine verb in Hebrew that you don't have in English. And we're seeing the feminine verb form there when it's speaking. So we know that it was Miriam speaking, maybe on behalf of Aaron as well, but she was the main focus. And I think that's why she ends up getting the diseased skin later on. Um, and, and the complaint was, you know, again, just re re remember that Aaron was a high priest and Miriam was a, Miriam was a prophetess. 
So the introduction of the complaint, you know, just seems to, to come out of left field here. What are they complaining about Moses' wife for? Why, what is the big deal here? I mean, and, and so and it's mentioned twice. It's got a little parenthesis in my Bible, but it said because he, he married a Cushite woman, for he had married a Cushite woman. And, and so that seems to be the, the real root of Miriam's complaint that she spoke against Moses because of a Cushite woman whom he had married. Now, really, scholars are divided. You don't really know for sure if this Cushite woman mentioned was Moses' first wife, Zipporah, whom we know of as a Midianite. Sometimes the Midianites had some Cushite uh, sort of influence there up in the same kind of general region. But um, this was never mentioned earlier about her being a Cushite, so it may have been a, a second wife. Perhaps Zipporah had died and Moses remarried and married a Cushite woman this time. It's even possible that Moses just took a second wife out in the wilderness while his wife was back with her father, uh, Jethro, in, in Midian. We, we really don't know, but here's what we do know about this particular incident. Um, what we can be pretty certain about is that whoever this Cushite woman was, whether it was Zipporah, the first wife from Midian, or whether it was a, another woman that Moses had married, they were complaining about her as a dark or black-skinned woman, because the people from Cush were people with black skin. And sometimes it would be this idea of this beautiful black woman. But Cush, if you'll remember way back from the genealogies in Genesis, Cush was a son of Ham. And the descendants of Ham had darker skin. And so the, the, the Cushites then uh, were people then who settled in what we would say would be Nubia, or today it would be Ethiopia, and there's a whole lot of turmoil going on over in Ethiopia right now we can also be praying about. But this uh, dark-skinned person, any dark-skinned person at that time, could have been referred to as a Cushite because of their features, even if they weren't exactly from Cush or Ethiopia. So we just really don't know much about this woman, except Moses had married a very dark-skinned woman. Now. The, the one thing that's clear here is that Moses was being criticized for marrying this dark-skinned woman. And no, no criticism was given that said, you know, this woman, this Cushite, she worships false gods, Moses, or this, she worships idols, or she's going to lead the people astray. Uh, no complaint was given about her spiritual life or her beliefs. It was just that she had dark skin. That was the only thing that Miriam was seeming to find as a complaint here. And she was of a different ethnicity. Now, one of the things that we know is Israelites did want to be very careful for not intermarrying with the Canaanites. And we do know that this rabble from the week before had caused a problem there with, uh, and they were mostly Egyptians. They would have had a little darker skin probably as well. So whether Miriam was trying to protect the, the sort of ethnic purity of Israel or whatever she was doing, that was her superficial complaint. But when we go just a little bit further, we start to see that her really presenting symptom, if you would, the thing that she's really complaining about wasn't really what she was complaining about at all. It was just a smokescreen, kind of an entry point. But as we look at the church in America, uh, the, the church in America has mishandled the Bible for many occasions in our past in arguing against marrying someone of another ethnicity or of another skin color. 
And I, I think we do have some fessing up to do uh, about the way that we have probably justified slavery, the way that we have justified things using biblical passages out of their context and, and saying, well, this is okay and we can do it in the Bible. And, and we had godly brothers and sisters in history time past where they actually did that. They, they actually went back to the Bible and they referred to Bible verses as justification for them taking people and buying them and selling them and at times abusing them as less than. And, and so the, the church in America has mishandled the Bible in some of these cases, and, uh, particularly with, even with interracial marriage. You know, there's, there's, there's a plaque, I think, up on Route 2 I heard about where about the lovings, and there's a movie about this right here in Virginia, uh, uh, an interracial marriage that was illegal and all the problems that went along with that right here in our own state. And all I can say for you is it's much more biblical and pleasing to God if our children and our grandchildren marry someone of another skin color and ethnicity than if they marry someone of their own race who is not a follower of Jesus. You see, that's what God is more concerned about. Are we having godly marriages with people who love him that we can put on display even part of the kingdom of his great glorious diversity and beauty of his creation. So as the message progresses, we see that Moses' marriage to this dark-skinned woman in and of itself is not really the main thing that Miriam is complaining about. Whether Miriam feared Moses' wife was somehow going to displace her or if it was in terms of she was going to lose prominence somehow among the people, we really can't be sure. Commentators are all over the place, and everybody's got their speculations. But I want to go down to what we can be sure about. We can be sure that Miriam and Aaron were feeling slighted by Moses' position before God and the people. They said, does the Lord speak only through Moses? You see, both of them had prophetic utterances, too. And, and one of the other things that we had last week in, in Numbers 11 is that, that God, when Moses said, God, I can't handle these people, there's just too many, and they are so rough. God said, okay, I'm going to give you 70 people who are going to kind of come along as elders. And those people started to prophesy. So maybe Moses and Aaron, Aaron and uh, Miriam were starting to feel a little bit displaced because now even 70 other people had this kind of prophetic uh, ability as well. But they were feeling kind of displaced and saying, you know, what, what does, does, does he not also speak through us was their complaint, you know? And in our modern day terminology, we, we could say they were basically saying, well, what are we, chop liver? You know, that, that's, that's kind of what, what Aaron and Miriam were, were complaining there. So the complaint underlying their initial racist complaint was the sense that, that they weren't getting the recognition and the authority that they rightly deserved. Now, I'm, I'm not sure what brought this to a head. Again, it could be the 70 other elders. It could have been this marrying a Cushite woman and being fearful of the ethnic kind of things that had happened with the rabble in the previous week. We, we really can't be sure. But the Hebrew does point to Miriam as the main spokesperson here, the one who was kind of starting this with that feminine verb form. Now, Miriam and Aaron didn't quite attempt a coup, but, but they were definitely jockeying for position here. And their complaint was not about adversity, uh, the adversity of, uh, that God had let them go through. It wasn't about the food. It was about God's choice of leaders. It was about saying, Moses, how do, how do you get all this leadership? How do you get all this access to God? Are you the only one who speaks for God? Now, 
it struck me as I was reading through this, because I can, I can get defensive with the best of them, okay? Um, not that I'm being competitive, but I can, I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I can get pretty good at being defensive. Um, but it, it struck me that Moses didn't defend himself. You know, Moses did not defend himself here. But what we do see is that the Lord God Yahweh defended Moses. And, and, and this is just a fascinating picture to me. In verse 4, it says, And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. It's like right now, you guys, you three, over here. Huh. The Lord is literally calling Miriam and Aaron out. It's kind of like the ultimate trip to the principal's office. Okay, they, they, they know they are in trouble at this point. But verse 3, if you look back at verse 3, it really seems to be kind of a non sequitur. What's going on with verse 3? This, this, is, this kind of puzzled me when I first read it. Because it was almost certainly inserted as an explanatory note by a narrator. Okay, now most of the Pentateuch, we can say, was, was written by Moses. I think most scholars, most, particularly most conservative scholars, would say that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay. He was the author of those. But now there are a few things that we know a narrator had to put in there, like Moses died. Moses didn't write, I died. Okay, uh, somebody else wrote that. Um, and there were a few little explanatory things that would have maybe been put in here. I think this verse three may be one of those. Now, Moses could have actually said it about himself. I have a hard time picturing Moses uh, saying, and, and Moses, third person here, right? And say, saying, Moses was a very humble man, more so than any man on the face of the earth. Okay, I, I, I don't believe Moses probably wrote that, but he could have. But it's an explanatory note in there, right in the middle of verse 2, where it says, and God heard, okay? And then verse 4, God called them, said out on the carpet, said, you guys come over here to the tent of meeting now. So that, that verse 3 is kind of in there, and I think it's important that it's in there uh, for a number of reasons here, because the, 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 the Hebrew term for humble here could have actually been a self-description of, of Moses um, because the term is, I, I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce it right, but hanau, I believe, would be the, the proper word. And it's used not in normal Hebrew for humility. This is not the normal word for humble or humility that we find in Hebrew. It's an exceptional word. And it actually doesn't mean just meekness or weakness, but, but what it means is one that conveys an individual's devout dependence upon the Lord. I don't know if I have that in here. I think I might. Let's see. Nope, I don't think I do. Um, but it's one who, who has this devout <clears throat> dependence upon, upon the Lord. Now, Moses was filled with limitations, and, and Moses knew that. Uh, Moses had a speech impediment, and he said, God, I'm not very good at talking. I stumble over my words. And so God said, okay, well, let Aaron be kind of a spokesperson. You tell Aaron what to say. He'll speak for you. Moses had killed a man, and, and that had caused Moses to have to become a fugitive. And, and, and Moses had this kind of a downward fall from the palace down to the pastures as he became a shepherd for 40 years out in the wilderness. Moses was well aware of his flaws and some of his shortcomings, um, and yet Moses is the ultimate picture, I think, of, of God 
using human beings who are deeply flawed and deeply weak, but also deeply dependent upon him. Okay. And I think that there, there, there's where we see, I think, a beautiful picture of this humility coming in here, this special word for humility. That's not just meek, not, not, not just uh, kind of uh, weak or nice, but, but he's absolutely dependent upon the Lord. And we see from the very beginning, Moses said, I'm not the guy, I can't do this. And, and God was saying, yes, I can do it through you, Moses. And Moses allowed God to work through him and trusted God in the midst to do things that, that would just be absolutely supernatural and humanly impossible for anybody to do in their own power. So the, the Lord gets all three of these, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, under the cloud in the tent of meeting, and he, he explains to all three of them that his relationship with Moses is extra, extra special. The, the, the Lord had spoken to people before, he says, but he said, when I spoke to people before, I didn't speak to them face to face. Literally, the Hebrew here is mouth to mouth. I didn't speak to them mouth to mouth. I, I spoke to them through visions. I spoke to them through dreams. I spoke to them through prophets that would have other ways that would, they would have to figure out more what I was saying, but I speak directly to Moses. And in contrast, we look back at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we see when God was calling Abraham out of Ur, and we see when the covenant was being made and the promise was being made to Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Abraham was sort of like in a sleep or a dream or a trance, seeing a vision at that time. It wasn't like he was right there in God's presence, seeing God's form, hearing God speak directly to him and being conscious of that. So God had spoken to everybody before Moses pretty much through visions and dreams as he was going. But he spoke to Moses mouth to mouth. And uh, not that Moses looked directly into the face of the Lord, but he had seen, it says, the Lord's form in that cloud. And, and the Lord, now, after expressing his anger and after telling Miriam and Aaron, you know, nobody's quite like Moses. Moses is special. And, and then he says, why were you not afraid to speak against my, son, my servant Moses? And then he leaves. So his, his anger was kindled and he left. So the, the Lord leaves Miriam and Aaron with a question there. Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant? And guys, I, I've been on the, I'm, I'm not a Moses by any means. I have been a pastor for 18 years and I've been a missionary for a number of years. And, and I've had a number of people speak against me. And, uh, you know, I, I think that we need to be very careful when we look at the leaders of our churches that, that God has appointed and placed there in those positions and called to be in those positions. We need to be very careful as to how we speak against the ones God has called for that. And that doesn't mean they're perfect. It doesn't mean that they're never gonna make a mistake. It doesn't even mean that sometimes we might wanna go and have a word of admonishment or encouragement and say, Pastor, you know, I, I think I had a hard time understanding how this lines up with scripture or how this lines up with what I see the Holy Spirit doing, but to complain about him in a different way. That's a different thing. You know, that, that's that rebellion kind of coming out here. Now, <clears throat> whatever the case had been with Moses' Cushite wife, the, the, the Lord did not indicate any disapproval or concern. The Lord never said to Moses, Moses, why'd you marry that woman? Uh, it, it seemed like it, it just was a non-issue. However, in verse 9, explicitly says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Miriam and Aaron, and then he departed. Then, then the cloud of the Lord's presence moved from the tent, and when it moved up and people could finally see again, because they couldn't see in that cloud, Miriam's skin looked like snow. 
the, the text in one, one version would say more that she was leprous. And leprosy in that time had different kinds of meanings. It could be something as mild as psoriasis, and it could be something as severe as like Hansen's disease, where what's what we would normally call leprosy, where you, know, you lose feeling and you can actually lose limbs of your arm. Things can just start to fall off. Um, we're not sure which one of these it was, the exact diagnosis, but we are certain that it, that it was the discipline from God because of her complaining. Now, there's a certain irony in God striking Miriam here, I think, with super white skin after her complaining about Moses marrying a dark-skinned wife. <laughs> okay. He says, you think light skin's better? I'll give you really light skin. See how you like it. Now, Aaron immediately then intercedes, but he doesn't really even intercede to God. Aaron intercedes to Moses. He says, my Lord, please don't let this happen to our sister. Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly. We have sinned. Uh, let not her be one as dead whose, whose flesh is like a half-eaten baby coming out dead and he comes out of the mother's womb. Now, this word foolish is very interesting too because there, there, were, there were sins in, the Hebrew, in the, the Hebrew scriptures where if you did it in ignorance, you had a way out. You could, you could basically just be shown a lot more grace than if you had done it intentionally. And what, what Aaron is saying here, I was foolish. I was ignorant. I, I really did not think. My, I was not in my right mind when I was complaining against the Lord and against you for this. So please don't hold this against us. And Mo, so Moses immediately, again, cries out to the Lord. And, and the Lord does hear Moses' prayer. And he does promise he's going to heal Miriam. But he said, you know, she needs, to, she needs to sit out a while. She needs to be put on the bench for a little while here. She, she's got to learn from this here. So even if her father had spit on her there, she would be dishonored and she would be put out of the camp for seven days, even for something that minor. So for what she did, she's going to sit out for seven days, and then she can come back in. So there was still a consequence, but God, in the midst of the consequence, showed grace. Now, let's take a closer look here. The, the Lord afflicted Miriam with leprosy of some sort. Then he removed the leprosy. But let's look back for just a moment to Exodus chapter 4, when God was initially calling Moses from the burning bush. Now, Moses feared you know, that if he accepted the Lord's call, because he didn't feel qualified, that, that, that um, people wouldn't listen to him. He said, God, what if Pharaoh doesn't listen to me? What if the people don't listen to me? Who am I? I'm a shepherd out here in the wilderness. I've been out here for 40 years. And if that guy recognizes that I killed an Egyptian back then, I mean, it could just really end badly. So Moses has some legitimate concerns about what will the people say? What will the, what will the people do? And the Lord gave two supernatural signs to Moses back there in Exodus chapter 4, right after he had started to speak to him from the burning bush. And... This helped to the, so that the people would gain confidence that the Lord was really with Moses and, and that, they, that God would empower Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. Now, the first sign was God told Moses, throw your staff down on the ground, okay? And when Moses threw his staff down on the ground, it became a serpent and started going around like a serpent does. And then God said, pick it up by the tail, which is not the way you normally pick up a snake. I don't usually handle snakes, but if I did, I wouldn't want to pick it up by the tail. Uh, but as soon as he picked it up by the tail... Um, it turned back into a staff again. And, and so that was sign number one. He said, now, if you, can, you show the people this when you get down there, and, and they're going to realize this is something kind of special. Sign number two was, do you, you remember what sign number two was? Moses, um, put your 
your hand into your, your cloak here, okay? Pull your hand out, Moses. What happened? He was leprous. He had this white skin, just like Miriam ended up getting, right? He said, okay, now, Moses, put your hand back into your cloak again. Put it back in. Pull it out. It was fine again. So God had already demonstrated his ability to, to do this act. And he said, now, if you show them these two signs, they're going to know that, that the power of God is, is with you. Now, we don't see him using that second sign later on with Pharaoh and Exodus. It's not written that that sign was used. We do see the, the snake and the serpent sign. He threw down his serpent. Then we see Pharaoh's magicians do kind of something similar by their magic arts. But then the serpent that was formerly Moses' staff eats all the others to show the greater power. So we don't, we don't see him doing the, the hand in the cloak leprous thing. But Aaron knew about it, okay? And I think Aaron would know that this is what happens when people don't believe the God is speaking through his servant Moses. And so I think there's a connection back to Exodus chapter 4 there, where God had already put this on display, and Aaron's going to see this in his head, and he's going to think, yeah, we disbelieve the Lord. When Moses spoke as God's servant, we did not follow, but we rebelled. Now, the, 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 as we look continuing on here, in, in the text here, the signs were, were clearly to cause the people to believe that God was supernaturally with Moses. And, excuse me, I want to I show you, I think I have a couple more slides here. I don't have my slides down too well. This was the verses from Exodus 4. Put your hand inside your cloak. He put it inside his cloak. When he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back in. Put, took it in, put it out again. When he took it out, behold, it was restored to the flesh rest of humanity. I just I wanted to see these two complaints from last week and this week, just to show kind of what's happening. The complaint at Tibera, people complained, God heard, his anger was kindled, he punished. The people cried out to Moses. Moses then interceded. Moses' prayer was answered. That's what happened in chapter 11 in this cycle of rebellions. Then at the complaint at Hazaroth, Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron complained. God heard, his anger was kindled against them. He punished Miriam. Aaron appealed to Moses. Moses prayed. Moses' prayer was answered. So we see this pattern going on. We're going to see it more as we go through. If we were to spend more time just going through numbers, we would see this in a little bit more detail. But in our series so far, we've seen Moses point to Jesus in several ways. We've seen Moses become this great deliverer, saving God's people a people for God from slavery to freedom. That's been one of our big themes. That, that, that there's this salvation from slavery to freedom. We've seen Moses now become a mediator of a covenant that confirms the Hebrew descendants of Abraham as God's chosen people. That's what happened on the Sinai covenant. And yet when we look into Hebrews in the New Testament, we see that, that Jesus had an even better covenant than Moses had there. But Moses was pointing to that covenant with Jesus. Thank you for joining us for the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast. I hope you will join us again next week for the next leg of our journey. For more information on the Williamsburg Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash men's breakfast. Have a great week.